Welcome, bienvenidos a la Cura Podcast, decolonizing Latinx health and reclaiming traditional healing. I'm your host, Francisca Porches Coronado. This podcast is a project of Mi Gente in collaboration with Resilient Strategies. Welcome to La Cura Podcast, everyone. This is the fourth episode of our pilot season, and it has been a really great journey for me. I've learned a ton from the folks we have conversed with and feel very moved by their lived experiences and also people's life work. Please let us know what you think thus far. When new things come up for you in the course of this conversation, what are uh, some outstanding questions or new ones that you're grappling with because of what you heard or things that were said that might have not sat right with you? And that's okay. Your feedback is invaluable and we are excited to hear from you. So please, please, please feel free to email us at lacurapodcast.gmail.com or send us a message on Facebook or Instagram at lacurapodcast. So with that, we want to talk a little bit about food as medicine today. Industrialized farming practices have prioritized economic efficiency above human and environmental health, resulting in the ecosystem losses and long-term damage of our air, water, and land. Today, approximately 70% of all processed foods are made from genetically modified products. Since genetically modified foods have only recently been integrated into our food supply, health risks are also not completely understood and can arise without warning. Our current diets are not our ancestral ones. Given that only in the brief span of the 20th century, agriculture underwent greater change than it had since it was first adopted some 13,000 years ago. According to John Hopkins University Center for Livable Futures, chemical and pharmaceutical use also became commonplace in newly industrialized models of meat, milk, egg production. By 2009, 80% of the antibiotic drugs sold in the U.S. were used not for human medicine, but for livestock production that we consume. And that's a direct quote. So, that sounds pretty disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps it's possible to go back to ancestral diets, but many of us no longer live in our ancestral lands. But in these times when Instagram feeds are filled with fad diets, Insta fame by women and men who have lost massive amounts of weight through vigorous exercise and an ongoing culture of comparison through Transformation Tuesday, in which obviously comparison is a killjoy for many of us, scrolling through our feed, and where we never see a pushback on the corporate-controlled food industry and its implications on our health. So what really matters is often not the main focus, regaining our health or fame or weight loss, but for having energy, wellness, better sleep, emotional well-being, and living a longer and a happier life. Today, we have two special guests with us who will be engaging on the conversations about food as medicine. The first one is uh, Chef Maria Parracano, who is the owner and mamipreneur of Sana Sana Foods. Maria is a Chicana, indígena born in Phoenix and grew up in Barrio Garfield, along with her five sisters and two brothers. Maria received her undergraduate degree from Arizona State University, her MBA from Grand Canyon University, and a culinary arts degree from Scottsdale Culinary Institute, Le Cordon Bleu. Maria is a mother of four, with her oldest being five and the youngest being nine months. She's married to Brian Cano, who is the artist and soul behind Ironwood Metalworks. Maria is a mother, a wife, a sister, an aunt, community organizer, avanzante, y una mujer de ceremonia. Maria is an executive director of the Siwapatli Collective and co-founder of Mecha, the ASU's Chicano-Chicana graduation. 
Sana Sana is a plant-based movement aimed at healing our community from diseases like diabetes and hypertension through food. Maria was taught to cook at a very young age by her mother, Maria Cristina Parra Martinez, and learned about indigenous cuisines from Central and Southern Mexico. Maria has been working with local community groups to expand their knowledge of ancestral traditional foods by providing community cooking classes, demos, and workshops. We also have Julio Cesar Mendoza with us. He's an artist, a musician, and a chef entrepreneur. He is the first generation American of Dominican descent. Julio became a health enthusiast and vegan advocate through the holistic self-realization and self-curing of his ulcerative colitis. <laughs> ulcerative colitis. Marrying his health journey with his passions, Julio developed the Ital Trap, a mobile pop-up food concept that specializes in tropical plant-centric cuisine, centralized around the concept of sustainability, wellness, and spiritual affinity with nature. So welcome to both of you to this podcast. Thank you. Um, you are officially you. the guest of the fourth episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> so Carmen and Julio are also my friend, part of my spiritual family here in Phoenix, Arizona. So it's a real pleasure to have you both in this space. I feel really blessed to do so. So I want to start with some really basic questions. One that came up just as I was reading your bio, Julio, is what is the beating of Aital Trap? Since it's your pop-up food concept, I'm totally curious. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good question. It's a common question typically here, even in Arizona. Aital food is really popular I'd say where there's a lot of concentrations of West Indians. So typically I was introduced to the ITEL concept back in New York. You know, I was born in Patterson, New Jersey, North Jersey. I uh, moved back after I finished high school and spent a lot of time exploring different kinds of diets. This diet is uh, originated in the West Indians upon Rastafarian cultures and utilized throughout most islands, the concept of having a relationship and spiritual affinity with nature, therefore causing the less destruction that you can to the planet in order to provide sustenance for yourself. And that's called ital, it's the root word being vital in English, like vital foods, right? In Patwa and Rastafarian, a way of speaking and, and delivering, you would remove the first letter of typically a word to represent unity amongst all words and the wholeness and its relationship with, you know, what you are doing as far as consumption as well. So beautiful. Yeah. So this has been a kind of a long journey for you. This is back in New York. When, how long ago was this? Well, New York, that was back in, let's say 2009. I was back in 2009 that I was in New York and I got a lot of exposure to different cultures at that point. Because being raised mostly here in Arizona, you know, you, ha you have certain cultures that are just consolidated to certain zip codes. And whereas you go in a place like New York, and then I live some time in Florida, and you have more of a, a melting pot and cultural exchange in, in certain circumstances. Granted, that's changing now in a different way, <laughs> but that's a whole different conversation. But at that point, I was able to get exposure to different foods. Is that the first time that you began to think about what you were putting in your body? Or no. Or does it predate that? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that was definitely, I was not very conscious about what I was putting in my body, although I was always very intuitive with the way that I eat, meaning that, you know, when I was a little kid growing up, you know, a common thing that was always told was like, mira, come toda la comida, no deja el plato así lleno, you know what I mean? Because obviously, you know, our previous generation comes from a work ethic where everything that you put on the table that costs money we also want you to be well fed you know what i mean be strong the milk is good for your bones all of that right so i intuitively as a kid growing up like i never would really finish a lot of foods and then in my teens i'd maybe eat once once a day or something like that and Then what I realized later on through self-realization is that I was actually doing intermittent fasting, you know, unconsciously, which is now a thing where people say, hey, don't eat from this time to this time. So I guess intuitively I had certain things in my nature, but I was definitely not conscious of what items I was putting in my body. So when I was living in New York, no, I was eating pizzas, I was eating jerk chicken, I mean. 
once you get that jerk chicken, once you get, <laughs> Intermittently. Ba- once you get baptized in the f- flavor of jerk chicken, it's kind of hard, right? <laughs> But, you know, from then later on, I started to, um, you know, incorporate different seasonings, different flavors into healthier foods. But that, that goes post a chapter that I had where I was diagnosed with what was an irreversible illness, where I really started to evaluate what it was that I was ingesting and how I was conducting my life. Mm-hmm. And Carmen, can you tell us a little bit more about your upbringing and when you felt like you first sort of began to more consciously think about food? Sure, oh. sure, sure, sure. So I actually was thinking about this a few weeks ago because my my I have my girls at home. You know, they're little and and um, they're fans of nopales, which is awesome. <laughs> But they, they. I was remembering, like when I was small and growing up, my mom always had nopales. We always had what we can. I consider my our ancestral foods for my family specifically, you know. And um, we we grew up with that. And the only time we got we went out to eat or fast food, which I didn't know what McDonald's was until I was in high school. We grew up eating at home mm-hmm. and eating Whole Foods, and we didn't have. My parents traveled a lot to between. They were sastres. Mexicano, so they made trajes de charro, trajes de mariachi, trajes de ballet folklorico, like different things, right? So we were always constantly traveling with them as their interpreters, <laughs> as many as our community does, the youth. So we we would drive out, we would stop at La Tolteca, which is no longer there, but we would get a super burrito, and we would all share that and then head down to Tucson. So those were my memories of like fast food, <laughs> you know, and then... um It was very limited. Fast was very, very limited. And as years went on, I started seeing um, right into my undergrad, my, my, when I was a freshman in college is when one of my sisters became diabetic. And so we slowly started seeing years later than it was two years later, my brother became diabetic. Then two years after that, my, both my parents became diabetic. And I think a lot of it became because of the saturation or, or large introduction of more processed foods into our diet. You know, my mom, And dad are, were older at the time, so then they're not cooking as much and not, try, you know, not as mobile anymore and things like that. And so I learned early on about like within my own family, just seeing what genetically what our bodies could take. And then also just the illnesses that are arising due to food. So in 2007 is when I decided to go to culinary school to try to heal my family from diabetes, um, try to learn different methods. And that's when I was introduced to French cuisine because that's where... <laughs> I had no idea about flowers and different oils and like all this stuff. So it was really good in the sense to where I was, I opened up a whole different world for me as opposed to just our ancestral foods, just learning different cooking methods, different seasonings, different things. Because like Julio mentioned, like in, especially in Phoenix, we get in our pockets and that's what we're used to and that's how we cook. And that's, you know, we have little ex- ex- exterior influence. So then um, I finished culinary school had the dream of eventually doing a restaurant at the time. But the whole purpose was to help heal my family immediately. A few years later, I became pregnant with my first daughter and ended up getting gestational diabetes. And then after my first postpartum visit, they told me I still had diabetes, so I didn't go away. So that's now my daughter's five. And four kids later, my fourth one <laughs> is only, is, she's now 10 months. And at my postpartum visit, they told me I was no longer diabetic. But because I introduced a plant-based diet right after my cuarentena time, my healing period um, postpartum. And um, it happened to me twice to where after two, I delivered two babies, I got postpartum preeclampsia, which is not common. They're seeing a lot in the medical field. They're seeing a lot of it raising among women of color, but due to foods and due to stress and things like that. But postpartum, it's not as common as having preeclampsia during pregnancy. So um, I attribute that to the trauma and shock in birthing. And for me specifically, I had a really traumatic birth this last time to where my whole body, my whole system, I think just immediately shut down and caused, I was bedridden for, I had to have an emergency C-section, bedridden, A week after being home, I had to go to the emergency room all over again for blood pressure that was through the roof, and they were afraid I was going to have a stroke and heart attack and all these different things. So I was very thankful for having a really strong community of women who helped my children, mainly, my, myself and my children, um, at home. And 
and I just said at that time, all plants, just plant-based, caldos and sopas, you know, different things, just all plants. Um, within two weeks, I was off the medication they had given me, no longer diabetic, and my blood pressure went back to normal. So I really attribute the plants and the medicine and our foods to help me normalize my body again. And um, naturally, postpartum, the body goes through changes. But I still think, you know, after that, my husband's like, what are we going to do? We need to help other people. Like, you were able to cure yourself. How can we help other people? And from one month to another, Sana Sana was born. (laughs) (laughs) So all aiming at trying to help heal our community through the food. But specifically when it comes to postpartum time, diabetes, and, and women health. It's so interesting that both of you are talking about your experience growing up and uh, seemed like you might have had slightly different experiences in terms of, yeah, I definitely came, my definitely my people's diet, my family's diet, not my people's, my family's diet was very much a poor people's diet. They were very, very, I don't even know if you were working class, I couldn't even say profoundly poor. And just a lot of my my brother and I kind of laugh sometimes about the kind of foods that were purchased by my parents. You know, growing up in northern Mexico and Sonora, cattle raising state, I mean, mm-hmm. beef was everything, mm-hmm. and it was the kind of scarcity that like you kill the pig or you kill the cow and you eat every single part of it. And mm-hmm. and uh, lard being such a big central ingredient to all of our products and my parents still going to the store here in phoenix where there's variety of oils not that a lot of them are terrible but going for the lard still going for the lard and cooking i think the first 10 years we were in this town we my mother still cooked with lard everything and we were all just kind of laughing like we're really lucky we're not we don't have any other serious i mean my, my my siblings definitely have some some health issues and i've had them but more serious you know or di- the more typical, I guess, my my aunts all have diabetes, all my, my father's sisters. And so just thinking also how poverty doesn't have to shape, I guess, how you eat because could be plant-based. But at the same time, I think it's also culture. And that doesn't make, it's not a bad or good thing, but it just is, right? And so it's sort of like what was available where you were, uh, your social economic status, mm-hmm. and also what like you connect to some level of joy, some level of like connecting and bonding and that kind of thing. And so your parents are from where, Carmen? My mom was from Texcoco, Mexico, which is just outside of Tenochtitlan. Or sorry, Totihuacan. And so the Lake Texcoco, that's where like the founding of Mexico City. She was from, like the lake was next door. And maybe some (laughs) of the access to some of the foods there. The culture that really shaped oh, yeah. than what your mother was and your her family and her ancestors were sort of ingesting mm-hmm. versus some of my ancestors whom I love dearly and who like really grew up on a very deserty area where desert plants are also very healthy. But mm-hmm. what was available, what the sort of government made accessible to us was a lot of dairy and a lot of sugar mm-hmm. and a lot of flour, flour. Mm-hmm. and cattle. Oh, Lots yeah. of cattle and pigs. And so interesting. And for you, you named an illness, Julio, mm-hmm. and how that sort of, you had been intuitive, you had informed yourself in New York a lot, and then to a certain degree, you had to take it to a whole nother level once you mm-hmm. found out you were sick. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, journey. What happened was that there became a time where I made the decision to shift my eating, not because of health, but from a conscious perspective. So I really started to evaluate what was going on around me by traveling a little bit, living in the, I was in a particular Caribbean island, which was Turks and Caicos. There you had food growing on the island and it was fantastic. It was scarce. It was fantastic. It was tropical, you know, very abundant fruit in nature, but it was typically eaten by some of the locals, right? And most of the food that was coming in, kind of like what we'll see in Puerto Rico right now, was, you know, subsidized food coming in from mainland, you know, from. So being there, I had different kinds of eating habits. I was on my feet a lot. So I was, you know, scarcely eating food in the sense that I was doing a lot of that intuitive intermediate fasting, like I was saying, was hydrating a lot, getting a lot of proper sunlight, which later on in my incursions and studies of our ancestral ways, I realized that those are the components that actually 
made up the whole uh, perspective of what nutrition really is. Because when we talk about nutrition and what we eat, we don't only eat with our mouths and our digestive system, but also, you know, the sun that we take in as naturally melanated people, right? You know, these are the nutrients that are actually, you know, activating different reflexes from the different bodily systems that we have, you know, our melanin is a civilizing and organizing molecule within our body. So sunlight is definitely effective, right? And also, you know, hydration. So, you know, the heat, so you want to be able to drink enough water. I really started to, you know, build upon what I was naturally feeling. It wasn't until I started to read books actively on health, just out of my own curiosities and explore other avenues that I made a conscious decision to say, I am not going to eat this. Before I even dive too much into this, I want to be able to also give thanks to the ancestors just for having this conversation mm -hmm. and also for being able to reflect on this and tell my story. It lets me realize that this is actually something that I believe came through from my ancestors. I believe that, you know, that intuition is not just something that mm -hmm. I inherited in this lifetime that is actually passed down from the wisdom that has transmuted from, mm -hmm. you know, my ancestral lineage. I want to give thanks to the ancestors. I want to give thanks to the elders, the wisdom masters who provided me with the information to make these changes. So most notably, that would be Alfredo Bowman, that is Dr. Sebi, otherwise known as the African holistic healer from Honduras, who is known, went to the Supreme Court for challenging his ability to cure and reverse diseases. He won and then relocated to Honduras, but continued his uh, practices. I also want to give thanks to Dr. Phil Valentine, Dr. David Klein, Dr. Laila Africa. All of these are the names of the uh, men who have actually helped me along my healing journey. And also uh, a Queen Afua. Queen Afua uh, wrote a book that changed my life, which was Man Heal Thyself. So using that as a template model also helped me as well. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to preface anything that I put down with giving them the credit that's due because most of what I'm saying, I'm using them as a point of reference and as the keys to my own holistic salvation. We'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, I started consciously picking up materials and I shifted my diet. I believe there was one movie that was really popular. It was Cowspiracy and it really breaks down like the, you know, agricultural industry and how that fuels lobbyists. And I'm sure we'll go into that, but that logically in my logical mind, I said in my mind body, I said, okay, well, that's just facts. So I'm just not going to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. And then from a spiritual perspective, which I cited some of these names and some of their teachings had me realize that this is just basic energy exchange. We all can commonly agree that energy is not created or destroyed. And anything that is creating in that system is not going to be conducive to my higher self by putting that. That's just a spiritual exchange. You know, you're inserting all that anxiety, depression, high blood pressure, diabetes that those animals had right into yourself with, with immediacy, you know, so you're immediately transferring that energy into your body. So from those two perspectives, I said, okay, I'm not eating this stuff anymore. I had been eating this way actually for like a couple of years. I'll say like two years in, I would say what you were called a vegan. Like this is something that you hear very often, mm -hmm. but I'm sure Maria will agree with me. Vegan does not always equate to healthy. healthy. No, it doesn't. That does not always mean healthy, <laughs> right? So I was one of those yeah. vegans who was like, oh, great, I'm not eating this and I'm feeling empowered. Great, I didn't eat this, didn't eat that. But I'm still eating a diet that was somewhat processed. I was eating processed foods and then somewhat also these, you know, dangerous four we were talking about, right? The salt. What did they look like? What did your processed diet, vegan diet look yeah, like? Yeah, so very, very simple. Like you could buy tortillas from a store. You could eat something from a can. You could buy frozen uh, Beyond Meat ingredients. which Mock meats. Mock meats, yeah. which are really like a child lab science experiment you know you know so <laughs> when you when you, when you yeah. read the when you read the ingredients you know, i became later to a point where i said i'm not going to eat anything i can't pronounce or looks like mm -hmm. an alphabet right mm -hmm. probably shouldn't be putting it in my body where i've worked my way to the point where now where i, I scarcely eat anything that that has a label on it mm -hmm. mostly eat anything that i can grab that i can touch and have a, a, a an affinity with as far as a connection to mm -hmm. Yeah, I was eating that way as a junk vegan for two years. And then I 
started experiencing stress in different areas of my life. And I also started to develop pain. And then also the symptoms of what you would, what in the Western medical church considered ulcerative colitis, which is an autoimmune disease by their definition that is irreversible. You will have the rest of your life. It is genetic and there is no cure. And you have to take this medication for the rest of your life. There's no way around it. This is what I was told repeatedly. I honestly just didn't accept it, like, personally. I sat there with the doctor, I remember discussing with him, like, well, let's find a plan. Let's put something together, you and me, where there's changes to my life, there's changes to my lifestyle, that I can eventually get off of this medication. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to be on this medication Mm -hmm. the rest of my life. He tells me at this point, no, Julio, you have this disease. This disease is yours. At that moment, it was like an epiphany that Mm -hmm. hit me from the ancestors and from the Most High that this man was literally putting a spell on me. They want you to accept the fact that this Mm -hmm. is yours, that it belongs to you, that this is something. This is who you are. That this is your identity. This is who you are. And I was like, huh, uh huh. Nothing against the man personally. He's just as indoctrinated. And he was actually mm-hmm. a Latino too. You know, so he's, he was just as indoctrinated. He was just as prohibited by law to say certain things, provide any nutritional advice to me either. So, so I understand these things. Mm-hmm. But that also was, came as a sign for me as well. Like you need to do your due diligence and dig a little deeper. After I was diagnosed with that, I did reach out to these men who I had provided me journey. I was actually a, a student of Dr. Laila Africa's school. So he has a school of holistic health. And so I inscribed in that so that way I could learn more about myself. And he has a book that is a gigantic workbook, but it's specifically it for self-diagnosis and, and treatment. And so I went ahead, got into his program. I reached out to Dr. David Klein as well, who I discovered had helped over 2,500 to 300, yes, uh, 2,500 to 3,000 people successfully reverse their ulcerative colitis. He lives off the grid in one of the Polynesian islands. And I got in contact with him. It was kind of rackety and and weird timing. And, you know, the, the time difference is very different. But we got in contact eventually. And he put me on a regimen that was mono meals and fruits. So I essentially, to, to make a long story short, I healed myself by really stripping down and simplifying my diet for this particular condition, which was I was having frozen mono meal fruits, like bananas, all one day mangoes all another day and incrementally adding things into my diet but first I started by the less I could into eventually I did fasting you know a 10-day fast of water worked my way back into fruit juices and and frozen foods which also came in hand in in a, in a from a spiritual perspective as well but you know I can dive into that later 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 on mm-hmm. but essentially the whole foods the mono meals mm-hmm. the um he there was an emphasis of light sunlight and activating my melanin and hydration, which was essential to my Mm self-healing. Thank you. That was actually, thank you for sharing that. Activating the melanin. I feel like I want to go into that at some point because I feel like I've never actually heard the concept. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious to talk a little bit about this, this critique that I agree with of the medical industrial complex and how it doesn't actually serve us it does the opposite Mm -hmm. it diagnoses us with whatever it's very good at diagnosis that's for sure but it does as actually does not provide a way to heal ourselves the healing part is what's seriously lacking and i'm curious with you carmen about you said you're after your fourth child Mm -hmm. you were told you had postpartum preeclampsia i'm curious about you had three other children. It's like, what sort of advice or intervention or what was the context under which, you know, some of these doctors, if you had doctors or if you had other medical professionals, um, what did that experience look like for you with, with the medical industrial complex? Yeah, I think specifically with this last birth, um, postpartum, it was, I've had a few people, birth workers specifically in, 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 in Arizona say, you know, we're just lucky you're alive because of the experience I had. And when it came to, especially for so many women in color who may not have, might not be used to as much exposure around the birth work and and the medical versus the holistic 
birthing process, you know, and, and who may not be able to have that voice to act, advocate for themselves. I'm just, I can't even imagine what other people have gone through that may not have that support as much as personally I do and, and just the consciousness, you know? And so for me, it was, it was insane. <laughs> I think a lot of people hear of um, an epidural and they think, oh, it's just, you know, a needle that goes in your back and tries to paralyze you pretty much so you don't feel any pain. Well, after 12 attempts to put an epidural in my back, they weren't, they, they couldn't do it. And I was put under for my, my emergency C-section pretty much. And then afterwards, I was awoken without pain meds. And I screamed in the labor and recovery. And the nurse was like, you should have had pain meds. I was like, well, who's somebody needs to come and give me pain medication. I could feel everything. Another nurse comes up, just squeezes my boob, you know, for like the, the, the first Colostrum. The colostrum. Thank you for the for the baby. And I'm yelling. I'm in pain. And so it was pretty much like I was just being pulled everywhere. My husband's like, you want to hold the baby? I was like, I can't hold her. I'm in pain. I can't hold her. I was yelling and crying and everything. And so I think that that was a really traumatic experience for me. And then also just trying to go have a natural birth prior to that, like a whole 24 hours prior to that, I was in labor. And I, they tried inducing me with a balloon. I don't know if a lot of people know about the balloon inductions. And so they did that. And the nurse just came and ripped it out of me. And I was able to see my tissues on the balloon. And she, and I yelled and I was like, what the heck's, what's going on? You know? And so from that to then being in the murder, it was just a very traumatic experience, I think, for me and my body ultimately taking the hit, you know, being ripped and opened and, just so much stuff happening with my body and then laying there and just knowing like I got to survive this I have kids at home you know like I was freaking out internally but saying like I have my kids I was scared for my husband scared for my children and say I gotta keep it together mentally spiritually I had my altar there I had my sisters there helping me and then but I just it's like that thin line to where I know what these people are doing I know they get paid per injection that they try to give but per process that they give, per medication, you know, everything's a where it's a it's a dollar sign, you know, pretty much. And we're treated that way. That's how I felt I was treated specifically to to where everything they were trying. And then I get the bill later showing that sure enough, for every needle that they tried sticking in me twelve times, it was like a thousand dollars each time. And they weren't able to do it. And then they were saying, Well, it's your back. You have an issue with your back. And I was like, No, I don't. I've never had this happen before. So they're just pushing the blame on somebody else. But ultimately, the doctor was like, oh, you know, it's just, you know, you're older, which I don't think I'm that old. <laughs> I'm 36 no. now. I don't have that old. <laughs> but in medical terms, you know, especially when it comes to birthing, they Old's consider. Age. Yes, they consider. Like, they even told me. One doctor told me. 36 older. Yes. I actually had a doctor told me I had old ovaries. Man. And I was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So yeah, that's that's a whole like, other issue, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, so I definitely felt the that the difference to where I was no wasn't connected with these people whatsoever, and then found like my connection once I got home was like I need to I need to fix myself, you know I need to ha- I have the tools spiritually and physically to help myself get better. That really, that postpartum time was difficult, but it ultimately I was able, I could say I was a survivor because I really think like if anything would have gone wrong with anything, I would have probably died, you know, and my children were there and I don't, I can't even imagine. We, because of that process, I don't think it's common uh, to the extent of what happened. I don't think it's very common and I hope it's not common (laughs) that other people have to go through that, but we're just trying to see what, how, how can we make that right for other people? I followed up since then with a few of the doctors and they're like, oh, you're perfectly healthy now. So we don't know what, what it was or what the issue was. And well, I tell them, well, since then I've been completely plant-based. So I don't know. I really honestly believe in that that's what has saved me and helped our family tremendously. My husband was 
for months still fighting it a little bit. I think it's harder for men, and that's a whole other issue también. <laughs> harder for men to make some some changes mm-hmm. if you don't have medical need, you know? Yeah. And, and older people as well. As you get older, especially raza, people of color, like, they're stuck in their ways, and it's hard to make that shift. And um, so even, like, and I could share, like, my, my suegra, my mother-in-law is really sick she's had and it's all attributed to non-controlled diabetes and hypertension and things like that and 100 diet all, all of it all of it is diet to where this last time last week she was in the hospital again had suffered maybe her fifth or sixth heart attack and has stents in her heart and they're 100 clogged it's all because of the diet we had one doctor actually say you should be on a plant-based diet one doctor out of mm. her medical team and we were there like cheering that no. cheering them on. yes <laughs> how can't we do this you know like we Say it louder. we had to be there and push and advocate you need to have yeah. a plant-based diet and they finally said okay you know and when her lunch came in from the hospital we're like that's not plant-based and she nos hizo unas caras but <laughs> you know but it's hard to make that shift after you know she's in her mid-60s so it's hard mm-hmm. for them but we could add, we advocate, my husband and I advocate for that for her in the hospital setting, but it's hard to what they're actually going to put, what they're going to put in their mouth, you know? Mm-hmm. I have a love-hate relationship with the medical system because I see, especially with my children, you know, taking our kids to the doctors and things like that, you know, I could see how that's beneficial, but then also knowing that ancestrally we have all these enseñanzas, these my experience with curanderismo and things like that is like there's so many r- cures that we could try to do with hierbas and things like that. But I know that when it comes down to it, sometimes pe- we need that medical system for like surgeries and things like that. You know? So I have a very torn relationship. For me, I try to do the most minimal into the actual medical field and try to do what I can with my teachers and my, my maestras and, and myself and knowing what my body could take now. And what I could help to keep it going and sustaining it. Thank you both for for sharing that really deep personal transformative journeys. I think what I gather from what both of you are saying is that this process with the medical industry can be very disempowering Mm -hmm. emotionally and physically and spiritually. Mm -hmm. And that you all had some level of awareness maybe because of your spiritual practices, because of your own connections to your ancestors and mm-hmm. and to your own comunidad, that you were able to say, no, this actually is not normal and that's not how I'm going to fix this situation and there's got to be another way. And so I think that level of awareness is is a gift and many times that, you know, might not be there for a lot of our community who's out there. And it is very, very common what you're saying that happens to women like, I think after having a really traumatic birthing experience as well, I ended up nerding out on like, oh, does this happen to a lot of women? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Every women of color. Yes. Damn mm-hmm. day, yes. Oh, women yeah. of color, mm-hmm. Latinas, mm-hmm. definitely black women. Black women have the largest mm-hmm. mix of death mm-hmm. <laughs> during labor. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to ask you all about to now go in, a little bit into this sort of like journey is that many people listening may be like, well... I'm not necessarily grounded in spiritual practice or I maybe haven't been as aware or how do I begin to sort of cultivate or like what is what is even like step one, you know? So one is like a little bit from y'all's experience of like what are some of the basic sort of food groups or foods that are out there that are really terrible for us? And then we can go maybe the second part of this conversation is like what are some of the healing sort of foods and when I say healing, obviously, somebody listening might be struggling with some sort of illness or just, you know, be a person who's like, I hear what every, what they're both saying and I really like what they're saying and I agree. Um, where do I start, you know? Yeah. So it'd be good to talk a little bit about what are some of the most toxic foods. And like you said, Julio, like, we don't even know what to call something sometimes, you yeah. know? It's like, I couldn't even tell you like one thing. Food-like substances. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So it'd be great to hear from both of you, either of you, of like, what are some of the things you want to name that maybe are, and you know, we wanted to do this, this episode from a place of a lot of love, both mm-hmm. for ourselves mm-hmm. and for our people out there who, who, you know, their diets might be 
a result of cultura, and I don't mean cultura like the most beautiful parts of our culture, which sometimes can be food as well, but like the culture that has been created um, in this industrialized mm-hmm. agriculture, in like media, in government, in like scarcity and, and poverty and post-colonial, you know, that's essentially what I mean. And so coming from a place of a lot of compassion and, and understanding that we've been shamed so much, mm-hmm. you know, for a lot of things, we have a culture of shame and guilt. And so I, we also want to make sure that, you know, we start from a place of compassion for ourselves as well as we want to shift for those of us who want to shift. Mm-hmm. I could go ahead and, and share some, I think for, for my family specifically, the number one, let me see, how should I phrase it? <laughs> I was going to say enemy, <laughs> but it's not our enemy. For our body specifically, it's flour, flour, wheat, processed flours and wheat. My mom would make every so often, you know, flour tortillas and things like that. And I just learned that I think the one thing I would recommend is just seek out different types of flours, maybe using a quinoa instead of just a white flour and a processed flour. Just use maybe a quinoa mesquite flour is really good. I also know that th- those Two specifically are really good to balance your blood sugars if you are diabetic and you really want a flour tortilla. <laughs> and I understand also a lot of people just don't have the time to, to make the food themselves. So obviously, that's another barrier of, of sustaining ourselves is the time to meal prep and make and cook even. You know, a lot of people have issues with that. So seeking out if you have to have a, like a flour tortilla or a tortilla in general. Well, maybe go for a corn instead of the flour. You know, just simple, simple little changes that you can make that way with our, especially with, with our Mexicano community. Like tortillas are there all the time, you know, and maybe just limiting yourself to a tortilla, to the number of tortillas, limiting to maybe just doing corn instead of flour because it's going to affect your body in two different ways. How do you feel like flour affects the body? You can tell us a little bit. With flour, this is where you run into the issue of people being and having a gluten allergy. Like this is where it comes from. It's because mm-hmm. our bodies genetically don't have um, the mechanisms to break down the gluten in flours. So that's where you have other skin issues re- as a result of it. You have eczema, you mm-hmm. have psoriasis that flare up because it's because of the gluten in your body. And so eliminating that helps heal that you know, in itself, just with the gluten itself. There's other health issues that could arise because of the gluten. Fibroids are impacted by it also. So there's all these systems within our body and just having some a tortilla even, or bread could just change how your body just, you could be in pain one day, you could be fine the next day, but slowly just cutting back on it. If you can't cut it completely, totally understandable, but just limiting it, you know, try it. That's the only way I would say is like, if you're going to try a different eating differently just try it one day just watch how your body re- reacts to it and then just keep making those little changes de poquito de poquito because i know for going completely gluten-free or even just plant-based is hard for people yeah no I, i'm in complete agreement with everything that she said as far as like somebody who's stepping into it for the first time and wanting to embark on a journey of, of wellness i think that to me there's so many things things that I would omit that for anybody mm-hmm. listening, it may sound like, well, that's crazy. You yeah. Know? <laughs> so I would just say, start implementing good behaviors one by one into your daily routine, starting with something as simple as hydration, whether you're mm-hmm. vegan, whether you're an alkaline mm-hmm. vegan, whether you're plant-based, whether you're a carnivore, omnivore, whatever, mm-hmm. you're not getting enough water most of the time. So I would say you would want to start by at least drinking you know, a liter or more of water every single day. Most people won't eat, don't drink a cup. They may drink something dehydrating like a coffee or a mm-hmm. soda and then not go until lunch and then, you know, eat some more food that clogs up the system. So I would say start by doing something as simple as drinking water with li- with a lemon juice in the morning mm-hmm. and like making it a, a ritual every single day. Well, just my water and my, my limon in the morning, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? For the And to me, that's very basic because then what happens is then you'll start seeing changes in your digestive system. You'll start seeing changes in your cravings because once you're deficient in hydration, then you'll want to compensate for that in like complex carbohydrates. And mm-hmm. then the cycle just gets more complex to declutter. 
So I'd say start small steps like hydration. And then once you feel comfortable with that, you'll see your cravings have kind of adjusted a little bit. And then you may find yourself craving something dark green, kale. You may find yourself craving something red like an apple, but you're then activating your body's natural intelligence because I'm a huge advocate that you are self-healing. I don't think the food necessarily heals you. I feel that it more so works in affinity with you on a cellular level Mm -hmm. and then allows the body to do its job. So I would say start with a simple habit and that's part of like what was implemented for myself on my self-healing journey as well as working with your body. But I do want to jump on with what she said about the grains and the flowers. Absolutely 100% correct. I'll slip up and I may eat one every once in a while, but in the household, they're much more efficient grains for your body on Mm -hmm. a cellular level. And that would be like Amaroth, Kamut, Mm -hmm. Spelt Flower. There's so many options Mm -hmm. that are actually more accessible than one would think. You visit like your local like natural grocers or something like that, and and they'll typically have them. So, yeah, I would add also for even just the water dishydration. Oh yeah, if using chia, yeah, if you just add chia in your water, one tablespoon has more protein than what is it the like a serving of of a beef. Mm -hmm. So just having that and and ancestrally, our ancestors would migrate everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Even now, migration is huge human it's survival you know human rights but chia would be put in water or in a liquid and then that's how our people would migrate and remain hydrated Mm -hmm. so it's it's an ancestral food powerhouse pretty much now in in the stores of course superfood 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 but it's like (laughs) you know it it is you know in essence it's it is and that's what helped communities stay hydrated it would be put in foods and but mainly in liquids to help the body remain hydrated throughout the day I think in my experience, specifically with, with dairy, we've pretty much grow a very strong relationship with, especially cheeses. Like I know, especially with since I'm just thinking of my girls. We love cheese, you know, and I, and I cut it out completely, and so they're now they're okay. They're like, oh, is it vegan? You know, they ask <laughs> random. They survive. Yeah, yeah, and it's fine. It. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, oh, it's just what we get them used to eating early on, you know, specifically. But for me, I wasn't really big on the dairy but i know a lot of people have an emotional connection with cheese one one time i I remember my sister's gonna kill me but (laughs) my sister was like pull over at this foot city real quick and i was like why were you getting she ran in and got a rueda de queso (laughs) opened it sat there and just started biting it oh my goodness biting it eating it and i was like what are you doing? You know, and this was in our undergrad. So maybe it was like the starving college student syndrome, you know, but <laughs> who knows? It was, she grabbed it. She was just eat, biting the rueda like nothing. And I'm like, she needed something at that time. It was an emotional, something emotional for her. And after a few minutes, she just left it there and put it down. And that was it. I just think that's the hardest thing for a lot of people to to stop eating is the cheese part. Mm-hmm. But because of that relationship, like it's like a comfort food in itself. Like if you have enchiladas and it's smothered in cheese, it's a comfort thing for a lot of people. And I think if you're if you're open to change it up and like speaking about enchiladas specifically, that's like that's a huge comfort food in my family. <laughs> and one time I made some for for them with I layered, I, it was completely dairy free, but I layered. Uh, uh, zucchini and sanaorias and different things in there. My sister was pissed. One of my other sisters was like, why are you making us eat vegetables? <laughs> and I was like, why is it bad to eat vegetables? <laughs> you know? But uh, like you mentioned earlier, like that poor people food, you know, it's like maybe we didn't have the, veg- the vegetables growing up, you know, as many vegetables. Or we didn't think we had the access to it. That's another thing, thinking, oh, you can't afford it. Well, you can't afford it. It's cheaper than buying that libra de carne. Just buy the vegetables. But yeah, cheese, it affects us too, to where the body can't break it down either. There's what well, you mentioned on the sugars, the the dairy, the, the gluten specifically. It's like our body either genetically or even like you mentioned earlier, there's, we have that ancestral memory. Yes, ancestral memory to where our bodies know what works for us and what doesn't. So slowly eliminating things like the queso, the gluten. You'll, and you'll feel a difference, I think, right away, just slowly eliminating it. Sugars, especially being as a recovering diabetic, sugars, we're told, are like bad, bad, bad. Anything is, any sugars, eliminate, drink diet instead, and that's not necessarily good for you either. Everything has carbohydrates. Everything has carbohydrates in it. 
which is naturally your body breaks it down into a sugar. Mm-hmm. So some things you just can't, you can't get away from sugar naturally if it's natural, natural sugar. sugar. So I'm a firm believer in whole foods, as many whole foods as possible. If you have a craving for something sweet, eat a strawberry. Just think of what you could change your body. Your body's going to have natural cravings for things like, like Julio mentioned. It's just finding what you could adapt instead of a candy bar <laughs> or something. Instead of the chocolate, which isn't necessarily bad. It just depends on the sugar in it, of course, and the process of it. If you have cacao, you want to grind something up, make it into something mm-hmm. perfect. Do it. That's natural, natural sweetness there. So it's just knowing how to explore when it comes to food, not being afraid of it. But sugar is definitely that, like in the even with the dietitians and nutritionists, they'll tell you specifically when it comes to diabetes, you can only have a cup of strawberries. Only have a cup. Don't eat oranges. The softer the fruit, the more sugar it has in it. So they'll tell you, don't eat bananas, don't eat certain, you know, oranges, don't have orange juice unless you have sugar low, don't have, you know, they'll tell you a big list and people are like, it's obscurity. What do I eat? Then they're like, pues no puedo comer nada. And that's yes. what you hear people say, pues que voy a comer, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. And they don't know. <laughs> but it's just in the, in, of course, um, the intake and just how your body, learning how your body processes the foods, really. Yeah, yeah I agree because when you're dealing with this, I, I can constantly refer to the medical system as like a, a church mm-hmm. because it's really built on beliefs. It's not really built on, you know, actual scientific development. Once you scientifically ev- evaluate something, you then implement that into your practice. But not a lot has been updated based off of nutritional research. Mm-hmm. And the other part is that they tend to fragment different parts of the human into just systems of the body. This is your digestive system. This is this and that. And then as Maria is saying, then they will fragment nutrition, Mm -hmm. you know, as far as feeling that you have to quantitize how many strawberries you put in your mouth or bananas. I mean, I ate nothing but bananas, you know, for mm-hmm. for like three months at a time. And, and I was perfectly fine because my body was self-healing. The, mm-hmm. All the self-healing mm-hmm. mechanisms exist within the body itself. Cells are constantly dying and regenerating. How are those new cells going to regenerate? To talk about sugar, salt, and flour and what and dairy those were the four correct Mm -hmm. is a very good conversation and that all direct to also emotional eating as uh, both of you were alluding to is is that a costumbre and also just like tradition but a lot of time that's just emotional you're associating an emotion with a food group or Mm -hmm. like a a substance so so sugar for example I'll tribute this, you know, to Dr. Laila Africa. He he advocates a lot of his literature to emotions associated with specific foods. So if you're wanting something crunchy, for example, constantly seeing you want something crunchy, you may have to evaluate yourself on a spiritual level for seeing if you are having a little bit of anxiety or stress. You may want something mm. that crunches and it associates with that sugar is typically associated with love. If you feel like you're you're lacking empathy or love in certain areas of your life, you may see why you want something sweet. So ancestrally seeing ourselves from a whole perspective, which is not just the nutrition, the the, the foods itself that's put in, but realizing that we're multidimensional beings, that food is just a vehicle. It's just matter. It's just energy exchange from one one way to another and not, you know, having to compart we compartmentalize everything as far as nutrition goes so you know sugar poison it's like crack salt ancestrally when you look at the way it's used we have to talk about which ancestors we're talking about my great grandmother is an ancestor but i'm talking way back if you go as far back as to the subtropical regions of africa and the caribbean and and these indigenous folks if there was salt being used you know in the other hemisphere of the planet was typically used to preserve a meat for a period of time it was not just on the table Mm -hmm. to start sprinkling on your food Mm -hmm. food was appreciated in its sun-fired state right the sun already cooks all the food that you really need you rip pull an avocado off you pull a mango off the sun already cooked that for you and as humans at this time we were appreciating it nutritionally and and also from a flavor standpoint without having to add any excess sugar or salt 
or mm-hmm. what is it they put in Mexico on the beach on the mangoes? What oh, see, si, el, el um, tajín. El yeah, tajín. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't really know what that yeah. what that is. You're like, but what is it made out of? <laughs> I don't know, but it tasted good one time. <laughs> one time I had. Salsa. So there you go. You see what I'm saying? So MSG. you don't. So you don't have to like add MSG. anything. Yeah, an MSG. You know. So all of those things that we've already touched on, I feel that just with like common, like a quick even Google search as mm-hmm. far as like seeing what's the process for this and then realizing from a holistic perspective probably doesn't belong in, in me at least to that excess so if you're going to use salt use a little bit of like sea salt a little bit of sea salt yeah. in the food probably would i don't know if you agree or not but yeah definitely probably the best I, way to I go think, about it i think oh yeah totally i think i had a, somebody just asked me the other day it was like oh if i have too much salt is it going to give me a heart attack you know i was like <laughs> well not unless you're you know, you have, your arteries are really <laughs> clogged up, but salt is not, is, is perceived to be, oh no, people, everything low sodium, everything's going to give you, so you don't have hypertension and things like that, but it's all in, in the, the location of, or like where you're deriving that salt from. So if the highest amount of sodium that you could get is in a canned or boxed product. Mm-hmm. So if you're eating completely 100% canned foods or can you know processed foods that way you're going to intake a lot of salt. So yeah, that that's where you have to kind of watch where that's coming from. If it's a natural like our ta- regular table salt has been processed and ripped of any nutrients naturally that the salt may have. So I would recommend, you know, like you mentioned a sea salt, uh Himalayan salt, you know, using exploring salt itself. What works for you, what doesn't? The regular table salt is not going to have any type of nutritional not at all. base for you. So I recommend just seeking out. I think that's the fun part for me. It's like having people say like, okay, say today it's quinoa. Explore quinoa, mm-hmm. you know, explore salts, explore different flowers, mm-hmm. you know, make it, make it a, a fun activity. A journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Make it Bec- a journey. It's, exactly. it's really a journey it when, is. It, when it comes down to it mm-hmm. for everybody. I think everybody's going to have their own distinct way. With me, it's fruits. Like I really enjoy fruits. I go a whole like all day just having fruits. My essential is spirulina. I have that every every mm-hmm. day. That to me, that's you know in the same boat as I think you said chia, right? Mm. It's a superfood. Oh, you know, yeah. That's the blue green algae. That mm-hmm. if without that, this planet doesn't even work. Mm-hmm. You get rid of that blue green algae, none of these animals are going to be around. Ecosystems are going to be out mm-hmm. of pla- out of whack. We're we're done in less than two hundred years. So you know the blue green algae. You know there's something in the form of spirulina that I have every single day, mm-hmm. and that also I believe doles out any cravings for like sugars, salts, mm-hmm. and that just has me revert back to what I said before. Just incorporating more good habits step by step, and that'll help you eliminate like these four monsters mm-hmm. that are the dairy and and all that. Mm-hmm. As far as dairy is concerned, we're we're the only mammal I know of. I don't know if anybody wants to challenge me on that. That drinks the milk of another creature. Yeah, like no other creature does that in nature. Yeah, and we've done that ancestrally in times of like drought, necessity, and you'll still have some folks who are live very remotely, but their lifestyles are not to be compared with ours. Mm-hmm. And, and the process and the way way it comes on our table is very very different for very different reasons. Right. So, yeah, we. We're the only creature, right? Right. right. <laughs> that, yeah. That, that drinks another creature's milk. Yeah. The humans, like, we're lacto, people are lactose intolerant mm-hmm. because our bodies aren't meant to break it down. No. You, at, you know, at all. <laughs> I mean, I always joke around that. I, I would like to add, though, you just mentioned, you just reminded me of something of the difference between animales that you're grazing at home or in the rancho or you know that our families just bring up is a way different process than what you buy at the store well i know i'm you know i am a really big advocate for plant-based but i think there's a if you if you're not completely plant-based there's a big difference between where you're accessing your even the the godness from absolutely can i piggyback off of that statement because no she set the foundation for i think one of the things you wanted to discuss and she's absolutely correct and and in the sense that that goes with my value of having a a relationship with your food Mm -hmm. once you have an animal in your yard in your campo whatever it is you're then associating that life that experience with the what's going to be on your table right we're so disconnected from our food than we've ever been where you can drive through a you know 
a it, you can go through a drive through and, and order animal parts wrapped up in a pretty foil. <laughs> We're so disconnected that we don't even know the food process ancestrally. That's something to reflect on is that there was a spiritual reverence. There was a purpose. There was a reason why another life was going to be taken. Mm-hmm. This was not casually done because they were craving chicken fingers, you know, <laughs> or like whatever. This is, you know, in my understanding, why you would have certain rituals and sacraments that are even done. Yes. Now, I don't know any Latino Caribbean household where regardless of what your faith is, there's some sort of prayer or something done before a meal. Mm. I refuse to think that this is just because of you know, colonial Catholic Church. I, I don't think so. I think that that spiritual reflex is due to the ancestral understanding that there was some sort of sacrifice that went into this process, this animal, the labor that went into the food, you know, and you're giving reverence to that. You're not literally praying to a man in the sky to say, thank you for putting this on my table right now. I believe that there was a deeper affinity and connection spiritually with the actual process of the grazing of the food and and having that understanding that the waters were cultivating the crops and that you had built a, a trust with this animal. Now you're having to take its life. Like that's not an easy thing to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By, by any measure, you mm-hmm. know, I've done it. And I can tell you that that's not like something that had to sit well. Well, well I'm craving chicken again today. So I'm going to kill another chicken today. It's, it's not a casual decision. And I think most people don't maybe connect with that. Mm-hmm. So finding that, that spiritual relationship and affinity with yeah. your, with your consumption, I think is one way to go about it. Especially in this time where, Paleo diets. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Keto, keto. Keto. <laughs> That's another yeah. one. These are all like Nordic diets. Yes. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. That are popular. The carbs are the devil, quote mm. unquote, for whoever believes in the devil. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that you need to just go lean meats all day, every day, which would be a really fascinating conversation for another podcast, which I hope that both of you will come back and we can continue talking. There's so many subjects and categories to this conversation. I wanted us to kind of get our feet wet a little bit during this first pilot season to begin having a conversation around food as medicine, around, you know, I think, Julio, you gave a little bit more of a deeper sort of understanding of like this exchange that we have this energy exchange that both food has a life force that we have a life force and that we're having an energy exchange is is also something that to think about and i've never i don't think i've ever heard it being phrased like that so that that that's very good and so wanting to have these conversations as we have more seasons with both of y'all so i'm just really grateful for for y'all's wisdom for your lived experiences because i know some lessons as most of the time that we build resiliency and and wisdom and lessons, they're usually hard lessons. And so I'm grateful for, for everything that's sort of been extracted from that in y'all's experience. And so I wanted to end the episode by asking you both to offer us, make a small offering. We usually end these episodes with either a remedio or a cuento. And so opening the space for... Either of you to share. I know both of you talked a little bit about what you wanted to share. So, Carmen, do you want to go first? Yeah. Mine is a simple, very, very simple that uh, most of our families already drink. But it's just a simple té de canela, which you could just... And it was really helpful for me because it helps level out blood sugars. And it also helps soothe and kind of keeps you warm, especially right now when it's a little more chilly. But it helps. Canela itself is very a very powerful medicine. So there's certain times when you should drink it and when you shouldn't. If you're expecting, I would recommend not to drink it because it does activate the uterus. If you're in labor, it's a very good tool to be having just drinking te de canela to help open ease the process a bit. But when you're not expecting, it's really good to level out your blood sugars, get your system going, and it's very anti-inflammatory as well. It's a warm herb that helps. Uh, helps the body process things differently also. So I would just boil a quick tea, a few sticks of canela, let it get dark. I like it strong, like the stronger, the better. And knowing that you could also dilute it later on if you need to, but getting it strong enough. And then I just drink it warm, cold, iced. I really like it iced, unsweetened just throughout the day so that it's it's simple, but it, it it'll help you feel good. 
Yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm actually going <laughs> to, no, I'm actually going to uh, uh, do that for my mother because she's mm-hmm. had some of the same health challenges mm-hmm. um, as, as kind of what you've put down as your experiences. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to uh, get on that. Mm-hmm. For me, uh, one thing, like I mentioned earlier, was that I do a, a shake that I'll drink every day, just a pure essential shake so I can get along with my day. So you get your mind off food because, you know, also having your mind on food all the time can be very annoying. What am I going to eat? And then you feel yourself centering your day around this. So one thing I have is a shake. It's mango, avocado, spirulina, like I mentioned earlier, a spirulina, um, blueberries, dates and banana so for me this is like a very whole food uh food shake i won't eviscerate and go down every nutrient of each ingredient in there but do know that that is like a a super shake that you can do to to go about your day one tip that i'll have because the hard part can always be like cooking or getting in the kitchen a lot of people are not accustomed to being in the kitchen as much as maybe you and i are you know we're in the kitchen a lot but i would always suggest like either pre-cutting your fruits and freezing them, freezer bags, keeping them in there. So you feel a little craving, the stomach's a little rumbly, go to those bags, open it up, make a shake or something like that, or make a banana nice cream or something like that. And just have everything pre-cut. You can even buy frozen. I, I'm okay with frozen fruit, to be honest, buying certain frozen fruit from certain sources because that's right when they're cultivated, then they're cut and frozen right in that part mm-hmm. so they, they have a lot of their they keep a lot of their nutritional integrity so having those kept frozen so that way you know when you do want to make your shake you can just do that but again i'll say it's like a half a cup of mango a quarter cup of avocado uh, you know a teaspoon of spirulina quarter cup of blueberries four pitted dates and two frozen banana that's what i have every single day that sounds delicious nice. um thank you both so much for this time, I'm really excited about you all coming back or us talking off the mic also. <laughs> just in front of the mic. And thank you everybody for listening. If you like this episode or previous episodes, please make sure you subscribe to La Cura Podcast and share with your friends. Thank you for listening to La Cura Podcast. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Francisca Pochas Coronado, engineered by Michael Soto, edited by Rafael Maya. Our music is by Rafael Maya. Please subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can find us on social media at La Cura Podcast. Baba la woo.